it simple, really. Great stories with a good cup of tea. It's the Tea with Mike Show. Please welcome to today's episode of the Tea with Mike Show, Dr. Laura Ellick, the practicing psychologist and consultant since 2001, and is currently licensed in both Florida and New York. As frequent guest on the Brooklyn Cafe TV show, Dr. Alec also maintains her own speaking, coaching, and media business, and is a certified teacher in Rikai, as well as being a Zumba instructor. And then I also believe, not that that wasn't enough, that you've also written a couple of books, one being Total Wellness for Mummies, and the other being Wisdom from the Universe. So welcome to the Tea with Mike show. Laura, how are you? Oh, I'm doing well. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me on. Hey, you're welcome on the Tea with Mike show. As many people know that tune in, we're all about chatting with people from all over the world, hearing different stories, a different perspectives, and I'm excited for you to kind of share a little bit of your story. Based off the intro that I gave, just to set a little bit of context, you're obviously a very busy person. Yeah, as you can tell, I I don't like to sit still for very long. I also have three kids who are really the light of my life and really one of the motivations why I do everything that I do. Fantastic. So let's kind of start off at the beginning. So can you start off by telling us a little bit about where you grew up and where you call home now? Sure. So I grew up on Long Island, which is, you know, a very nice place to grow up. I had a suburban childhood. I would consider it fairly boring. Not much to do on Long Island except go to the malls and shop and, you know, go to the beach and things like that. So when I was getting ready to go to college, I knew that I wanted to have a completely different experience. So I headed south to college and I went to Virginia. And it was a fantastic experience. I was at a school where people came from all over the country. There were international students there. It was just a really, really fulfilling experience for me just to have different opinions, to hear people. There were a lot of kids whose parents worked in D.C., so there were a lot of government opinions. And it it was just a fascinating, probably one of the most intellectually stimulating times for me and really solidified at that point my decision to go into psychology, which I'd sort of thought about as I was growing up. And then really just being there and being in that environment and seeing so many different people, my psychology classes were what I really loved. And so that's what I pursued when I got out of school. And and as you see, I've been shifting every few years, trying to take something and redirect and and do something a little different, different ways of helping people. So that's kind of where I am right now. That's awesome. So kind of everything you do, like you mentioned, is stemmed around like helping people, but it might just kind of have like a different execution, let's say. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think the days of people working at one company for 40 years, getting that gold watch and retiring, I think those days are over. Yeah, well, I think about even how many, I'm 26, and I even think about how many jobs I've already had, and it's like, as well as doing all my own stuff, I'll probably have a whole bunch more for a variety of different reasons, and the world has just changed. It's not necessarily that people might not want to work at one place. A lot of times, because of different recessions and Mm -hmm. and different challenges companies go through, it's just not simply, like, possible to be at one place for 40 years, and 
personally, I can't be at one place for 40 years. I find it very boring and I like to mm-hmm. have new challenges and things like that. Right. Probably similar to you in different ways, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's always seeking a challenge with, you know, that that core nugget of how can I serve people? How can I help people differently or keeping up with the technology or the travel or the pandemic is just figuring out different ways to be helpful. Exactly. And we'll get more into this in a minute, but I'm curious to know what were kind of some of your favorite subjects in school? So let's see, in in high school, definitely Spanish. I loved languages. I took Spanish and French. So in college, I actually double majored. So I double majored in psychology and Spanish, and I took Spanish, Portuguese, and French. So those were my favorite topics. But I have to tell you, the, the thing about college that's so cool is it gives you the opportunity to try courses that you would never take. I developed a really keen interest in anthropology, I loved my anthropology classes, and if if I wasn't going to double major in Spanish, I would have gone the anthropology route, but just as like a career option. There aren't too many career options, but that was a topic that I really loved. I still enjoy it. Fantastic. And so if I was to ask some of the teachers that you had in high school, describe, I guess, what you would like to teach and what your kind of personality was like, what would they say? <laughs> They would say that I was too darn worried about everything, but I was very, I was very determined. I was very hardworking. I was very motivated, but I was also very, very hard on myself. And it's, it's really interesting because my daughter is now is 12 years old. She's completing seventh grade. She's actually taking her last final exam today because she's in New York and that's where, you know, they go very late there. And I see those same qualities in her being very driven being very motivated wanting to do well and i'm like wow so here is it you know the genetic piece because personality wise she's very much like me but i've changed a lot since i was a kid and i'm much more chill but she still got that core of that personality piece so i'm hoping that i'm teaching her a little bit different but definitely i also enjoyed school i love the challenge Awesome. And would you say that obviously personality naturally can change over time, but any driving factors behind the change? For example, is it just gaining more life experience and perspective or is it something different? I think that's a great question. I've thought about that myself. I think it's a combination of things. I think once you have kids, you have to let go just because you have to of a lot of the things that you would normally want to do perfectly because you just can't. And then I became more keenly aware of being a role model for my kids and what I wanted to show them that was different from how I was. And I think my confidence really grew. Once I was in the field for about 10 years or so, that was when I really learned how to think. I learned how to integrate things that I had learned. I learned not to just memorize things. I learned to build on my life experience and put it within a context. And that I found was really helpful too. And that helped my confidence grow. Awesome. So you touched on it already, but I kind of want to go a little bit deeper. So if I'm not mistaken, originally you wanted to be a teacher, right? Yeah. So again, was there any driving factors or thoughts that made you go like, I definitely want to go down the psychology path and be a psychologist instead. Well, I think it's I think it's kind of interesting. I think the 
for was always that I wanted to help people. And originally it was to, to help kids. And so at first it was a teacher because when, you know, my favorite TV shows, they were the teachers. So, and my mother was a teacher and I have a family of teachers. So I had that influence. But then as I got a little bit older, I noticed I was always drawn to like those after school TV specials about troubled children. And the books that I would read were always dramatic stories about children in trouble. And, and so as I went along and got older, I realized that that was really what I was interested in, but I didn't know what to call it at that time. I had never seen a psychologist. I never knew a psychologist. I didn't know what they did. And it wasn't until I got to college that I realized, oh, you can actually do something with this. Also, so I believe you went to the College of William and Mary. Is that correct? That's correct. Perfect. So what was some of the most challenging things about being in college, you know, kind of studying Spanish alongside psychology? I think the most challenging thing was leaving home for the first time. I have to say, I did not expect the homesickness that I had. That was definitely a challenge. And you have to remember, I'm, I'm a little bit older than you. When I started school, we didn't have cell phones. We actually didn't even have phones in our room. We had one pay phone in the hallway for everybody to use. So it wasn't that you could reach out and call someone at any time. There was no email. It was letter writing only. Now things changed during my years in college, but I think it was that isolation and that feeling of, oh my gosh, I am doing this on my own. That I thought was probably one of the most difficult challenges. And then I think second is just being among so many people who were so smart and it had so many diverse life experiences that I looked and I was like, wow, have I really done anything with my life yet? And of course, this is an 18 year old saying, have I done right. anything with my life? But I think those were two eye opening moments for me where I was like, welcome to the real world. Yeah, and just to go off your point, yeah, my parents have told me like countless stories of queuing up at the end of the hallway, or or yeah. Yeah, even at, or even at the end of the street for that matter to use like one payphone, and you only had so many minutes to cram in like you'd use yeah. before before your mm -hmm. money rang out. And so I think from being from a more later generation, it's always cool to hear stories like that and to see how far the world's come and see where my, my parents get their views and their perspectives from, because obviously they're going to vary from mine and stuff. So to me, it's all just fascinating to learn. Just as much as I love to talk to like old people, because old people obviously have lived longer, so they have sure. a lot more life experience and they have great stories that, that you can actually learn a lot from. It should almost be compulsory to talk to someone over the age of X every week, because it, I think it really can help especially if you're younger, personal and professional development. Absolutely, absolutely. I think there should be a, a mentorship almost. People, you know, especially in our culture, we don't really respect the elderly mm. as much as they do in other cultures, like in the Japanese culture. And we have a tendency in our culture, if you're over a certain age, we sort of discard you. And we forget that older people have so much wisdom and they now also have time. They have the time to share their skills, time to share their talents. And I think we've forgotten that along the way. And at the end of the day, the people that are older have basically built the environment and the communities that, that mm -hmm. you are born into, right? And, right. and people definitely like don't remember that. Like, I obviously had great grandfathers that fought in the world mm -hmm. wars and stuff. And 
if they didn't make that sacrifices, then the world could look a lot different. And who knows? I might not have even entered the world. And I, I mm-hmm. think people, I don't want to put people in boxes, but especially I think below the ages of 20, like definitely don't have a sense of appreciation for some of those types of things. Right. And it's kind of sad. It is sad. And as much as social media and phones and all of that stuff supposedly connect us, I think we've we've lost a little bit of connection because we're not staying in touch with the older generation. We're losing our sense of history and our sense of passing down oral traditions from family member to family member. All of that is lost. Yeah, and that's what also a side reason why I kind of started the podcast. It started as a college project, but another reason was I really like to talk to different people. I'm a, I'm a bit of a talker and stuff. So I was very grateful, actually, that I was doing the podcast, especially in the height of the pandemic, where we didn't see mm-hmm. very many people because of the, the variety of restrictions. So the podcast for me, from a mental health perspective, was kind of an outlet to to remind myself how to conduct conversation and to keep learning and stuff even when everything seems like nothing's happening, right? So I'm in that sense, I'm very grateful to technology and podcasting for allowing me to, I guess, not lose time and go into a very negative mindset. Of course, I had those moments where I'm like, oh, I wish I could see my friends and things like that Mm -hmm. on this end, but it could have been a lot worse, I think is what I'm trying to say. Absolutely. And I think that's what we're seeing. We're seeing the mental health crisis now coming out of the pandemic because people were socially isolated. They were depressed. They were anxious. Rates of addiction went up. We saw all of that happen. And that was really from the lack of connection. Even if you're at home with people, if the relationships are not good, we saw a lot of marriages end. So just being around people doesn't necessarily mean that the relationships were satisfactory. Now coming out of the pandemic, this is what we're seeing. We're now dealing with that that side effect of the isolation. Yeah, I've definitely noticed, like, when I say hello to people, it's like they don't hear me, or because I've worked a little bit in the past in, like, customer service, and so when I'm trying to conduct a conversation, they might come out with, like, you don't really, like, care about how I feel, or they'll just give me yeah. front, or, like, nothing, and I'm like, I stay positive, because that's not who I am, but I'm like, that's that's really sad that it's, we've come to, like, grunting at people, or not addressing mm-hmm. someone by their name and stuff, and yeah, I don't know. It we've lost me. a lot of our social but, skills. Yeah, and now we have to start almost, like, from 30, 40, 50 years ago, when we were first learning how to, like, communicate amongst people, right? Absolutely. It's so interesting because I just read something in the newspaper the other day. I don't know if it was an official study or an observation that someone had made. I think it might have been a study, but I don't have the, the official data on it. But it showed that young kids, like preschool age kids, are coming into school, like kindergarten, not having the social skills that they need to function in school. So they're rude. They don't know how to sit still. And they're not doing it Purposely, they just don't know. They haven't been able to practice being around other kids. So, you know, like kindergarten teachers, preschool teachers are dealing with unsocialized kids. And so they can't really work on the curriculum, like teaching you how to read. They actually have to teach the kids how to sit still, sit in a circle and listen to each other because they've never had to do it. Yeah, it's actually mind-blowing if you, like, start to talk about it and think of specific examples, right? Because preschool and nurseries, like, depending on, like, how it's structured, where you live, actually play a more of a, like, critical role than 
people mm-hmm. think. I don't think they like get enough credit because they teach a lot of like things like manners and listening and learning to play with other kids and mm-hmm. stuff. So before the pandemic, they had that like base skill. Obviously, there's uh, there's going to be fluctuation along the scale, but yeah, now they're yeah, almost like years behind in their education. Years behind. And again, we're talking about like generation shifts too, because, you know, in when, like when I was going to school, they didn't have nursery school, right? Because, I mean, they did, but rarely anybody went because you had so many families and communities around you that the kids would just be on the block playing all the time or families were very close. So there was a lot of cousins or family time or things like that with people spread out all over the country and people just disconnected. You now sort of have to send your kid to a nursery or something like that. Otherwise, they're not going to have interaction with other kids. People don't just hang out, you know, on the block and play tag anymore like we did. No, very good points. Okay, so we're going to take a little pause and then we'll dive back into all of these fantastic subjects that we're talking about. So today's tea fact is roasted brown rice and green tea together are served as gamacha in Japan. This formed part of a staple diet when times were hard to provide more of a meal. And that comes from teahow.com, 100 facts about tea. So every episode, we always have a new tea fact on the show. And it's just interesting to learn, despite some of the conversations that we're having, like how deep the tea industry is and the different things you can learn and how tea is a lot more complex than necessarily the quick form of making tea, which is put the kettle on. Like, put your tea back in, stir it, add a little bit of milk, and then you're done. The traditional ways of making tea, it's a long process. I think that's really cool. I think we're missing that. And so we were chatting before we started recording, and I know that you also like tea. So do you have some favorite teas? So so here's what's really interesting. My daughter also went through a phase when she was younger Every day she needed her tea, it was relaxing. So her special tea was her special tea, haha, was Earl Grey tea. And she would have to have it a certain way with a certain amount of milk in it. But there was a whole ritual to it. And that's what's so cool about tea. It's, you know, it's that gathering. And of course, in, in England, they have tea, right? That's part of, but it's connection time. So me personally, I go through phases with tea. For a while, it was cinnamon tea. Now I'm on a mint medley tea. I like the mint chamomile. I really like for relaxation. So it all depends on there is a tea for every mood there really is sometimes with milk sometimes without milk it, it all depends but there there are all different ways to do it but tea was something I used to have as a kid it was associated with comfort so if I was homesick from school there would always be tea and toast that my mom would make for me so so I have fond memories associated with it so that's cool that you brought up tea and toast because like when you're sick because so when I was sick I used to have like marmite on toast mm-hmm. with it with a cup of, I guess because I was younger, it would be way more milkier than I drink it mm-hmm. now, and, and sometimes a little bit of yogurt, and that was, like, the best mm-hmm. combination. And then you used to, I used to have my blanket with my hot water bottle and stuff, and yeah, I, I, I used to snuggle up and, like, watch movies. Man, I miss those days. <laughs> right, right, but it's so interesting how there are so many memories associated with that. Sure. One of the things that I decided recently, because I think it would be cool, would be to like visit like somewhere like a tea-based country, probably somewhere like Japan or maybe even India, to to really just see like how it goes from 
the fields to, like, I guess what you get in the commercialized boxes, because there's a whole process and stuff, and I once had a tea, a certified Japanese, like, tea advisor on the show. Called, oh, wow. uh, Yeah, that was so cool, called Ricardo Caicedo, and he does different tea showings and samplings, but he, he obviously knows a lot more than I do about, like, the history and how it's made, like, by hand and all of that, and I just learned, like, so much in that episode, and it's something that I'll always remember, because that's someone that's learned his craft from experts in the field in Japan, and it was just cool to connect with someone in a different culture, culturally, too. Yeah. Absolutely, and I think the word that you used is fantastic. I think making tea is a craft. I think knowing how to select the tea leaves, how to brew them, I don't know anything about that. I am I have been a tea bag person, but I think it's fascinating and I think, you know, it's something that again, it's a ritual that can bring us together and at this point, I think our country is so disconnected that anything that we can use to bring people together, I think is a good thing. Definitely. Let's get back into it. So can you tell us how you first became interested in the field of sorted eating and why did you decide to do a PhD in clinical psychology at St. John's University and end up writing a dissertation on the role of cultural factors in the development of disordered eating? So I think one of the things that was striking to me is when I went to college, I had made a decision. I don't know what I'm going to major in. I'm going to major in whatever class is the most interesting to me and doesn't feel like work. And so once I opened my intro psych textbook, that was a class where I always wanted to read more. I wanted to be ahead of the group, not to get ahead of the group, but because it was so fascinating to me that I didn't want to stop reading. So I knew that that was going to be kind of my thing. Then like an observation I made was on my freshman hall, I believe there were six, six out of 18 girls, I think it was. So one third who had had an eating disorder or were struggling with an eating disorder. And so, you know, we were all 18 years old and one third had already had one. And then during my freshman year, I developed an eating disorder as well. So I could see how vulnerable the population is at that age and how culturally we were just going through so many different shifts. That was during the time just heading into the 90s where heroin chic was how you were supposed to look, the Cape Moss, super skinny. So there was a, a big cultural influence too. And so, as I'd mentioned before, I was really interested in cultures. I'd studied anthropology and was interested in, in Spanish. And so my decision was, okay, how can I merge my two biggest interests together. And so I decided when I was going to go to graduate school was that was what I was going to do. I was going to focus on some of the cultural differences in this particular topic. So I decided to go for a PhD because I was a high achiever. I was motivated. And I said, well, if that's what I can do, then I'm going to do it. And I, I picked St. John's. It was back in New York. They had an excellent program. And so going back home was a little bit difficult going back to New York after being in the South. But it's pretty competitive to get into graduate school. And you really have to go where you get in and where the good programs are. And that's kind of where I landed. And so I knew what I was going to do my dissertation on. It was a no-brainer to me. That's awesome. And so can you tell us a little bit kind of about your career journey after this and the most important things that you kind of learned along the way? Hmm. I think 
I think the most important thing that I learned, and I see this also in people who are doing marketing and who are marketing themselves, and you know, it's sort of been driven to what is your specialty? And we've gone into a mode in our country where everybody has a specialty, right? So if you go to a doctor, you have a problem with your ears, you have to see an ear doctor, you have a problem with your eyes, you have to see an eye doctor. Like nobody treats the whole body anymore. And so, you know, people told me when I went to graduate school is focus on that one thing that you're good at. Well, I knew I was good at treating eating disorders, but that wasn't what I only wanted to do because I knew that that would, first of all, I wasn't interested in only doing one thing. And I just didn't think it was smart. If I wanted to be a psychologist, I wanted to learn about psychology as a whole. So I would encourage people, and this is what I did, is any opportunity that was given to me to learn from someone, I took it. So it was, hey, do you want to work with kids? Yes, I'll work with kids. Hey, do you want to take a patient in the prison? Yes, I'll take a patient in the prison. Do you want to work with HIV positive people? Yes, I'll work with HIV positive people. So any opportunity that I had to learn and to grow, I took it. And I think that's helped me. So, you know, am I a generalist? I know a lot about a lot of topics in psychology, but I do also have some specialties and I think it served me because I can work with this population and take information that I learned from working in a prison setting and know that, okay, there's nothing as challenging as working in a prison setting, I can handle this. And so I would encourage people, seek out those opportunities. There's, there's room for everybody and there's always room to grow. Fantastic. So actually, there is a history of eating disorders in my own family. Obviously, this is quite an important subject to me. So it's kind of cool that we're talking here today. So what advice would you give to anyone listening who may be struggling with an eating disorder or knows somebody else that's struggling with an eating disorder? What are some different ways they can help depending on the situation? I think, number one, it's recognizing, you know, a lot of people say she's so stubborn or he's st so stubborn, he won't eat, she won't eat. And you get involved in that power struggle. An eating disorder is not a lifestyle choice. It's not like someone wakes up one day and says, I think I'll have an eating disorder. An eating disorder is a way of expressing pain. So if, if a family member can have compassion for the person who is experiencing pain, that will go a long way. So for somebody who is actually struggling with an eating disorder, I would encourage them to get help because they don't have to be in this pain. They don't, I'm proof that you don't have to be in that pain. So seek the help. It will be challenging, it will be hard, but it will ultimately be fulfilling and, and you will save your life. What people don't understand is eating disorders have the second highest mortality rate of any mental illness. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, you know, you would think it would be depression or schizophrenia. No, it's eating disorders. Well, if there's one thing that I learned today, it's literally what you just said. Because if you'd quizzed me, I'd have probably gone for things like depression, the obvious stuff, the things that the media probably like highlight. Right. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So Dr. Ellick is kind of a personal brand. When did this start to come into the mix? So I think I did, I did my first book in 2009. I published a book and had a baby in the same year, wow. um, which 
I don't know if I would I would recommend that, but that's what I did. And I think, you know, my my goal always was to head in the direction that I'm heading. But, you know, sometimes life gets in the way and you have to redirect and shift your goals or, you know, uh, you know, something happens in life, whether it's a divorce or a death or something. And sometimes you can't go on that straight path. So I would say my path has sort of been like this, but over the past few years, it's sort of been like, okay, now is the time to really start focusing on where I want to be and how I can serve people best. And I've done years and years of the one-on-one therapy and I've done group therapy and things like that. And I think it's really, really effective and I think it's helpful, but at the end of the day, I'm limited by the number of hours that I can physically work right? So I can only see a certain number of people. And I'm looking right now at how do you make the best impact? How can you help the most people? And we know right now that people are really struggling. Our culture is struggling, not just in this country, in all countries, we see it all over. And so now is the perfect time to expand and to grow because with Skype, with Zoom, you can reach people all over, like we were saying, you know, it doesn't matter, just pop on a Zoom. And so, you know, that's where I've gone in the past couple of years. And now this year, this year is going to be my year to actually put everything that I've been dreaming about and manifesting into action. That's awesome. So what were some of your initial goals kind of when you like started thinking about developing out the personal brand and how have they evolved? So I always wanted to be Oprah, but there's only one Oprah. So, and nobody can be Oprah. So, but I always envisioned myself because I always liked acting when I was a kid too. I'm not afraid of the camera. I'm not afraid of groups. I'm not afraid of being on stage. That's, I enjoy the energy of people around me. So my goal is to, to do speaking events, to eventually get into TV, to really connect with people on that, that level where you feel the energy of the group and you know that the group is getting it. You can look into an audience of people and you can notice or I can notice when someone is getting an aha moment and there is nothing more gratifying than seeing somebody really getting it and you know that they're going to be making a shift because of just being in that room together so that's where I want to go but always my my brand is me and so it's authentic and it's real and it always comes from a place of wanting to spread more love and joy and peace to people. And my tagline has been for a while, peace and love, which I came up with way before the pandemic, but I see now with everybody being so angry, how much more we need it. And I've always thought about with my brand is what can I do that will make my kids proud? Because at the end of the day, I'm a mom first and I can't do anything that I couldn't come home and tell my kids about. Fantastic. And we'll have a conversation about this another time. But I love theater. I used to do acting when I was younger. And what drew me to that was just the teamwork and the -hmm. the goosebump experiences that you can create and how, for example, you can go from on a Monday morning meeting a bunch of strangers by Friday through like a creative process and putting on a show. Like Mm -hmm. some of those people can be your best friends for life. It's cool to you're like, how is this possible in like just barely any hours to go from not knowing anybody to feeling like you've known them for a lifetime? And those are some of the like moments that I always want to experience forever because they're so powerful and meaningful. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would love to get back into doing some acting, some theater, but as an adult, it's a little bit harder because there aren't really people who are doing it for fun. It's all like professionals and you have to have a resume and it would just be nice to do it just because you want to do it. Yeah, it depends on your environment and obviously like where you're based for community theater. Some communities have lots of it and then other communities, it, it just doesn't exist because there's just not right. the overall interest, right? Mm-hmm. In some ways, like where I am over here in Canada, there is quite a bit of community theater. So if I, if I really wanted to like do it again, even if it was just not even performing, even if it was just involved, being involved in the creative process, it's probably something I could do. But and the challenge is like time, right? Because <laughs> of course, right, right, yeah. Awesome. So, uh, what have been some of the kind of the challenges of establishing your brand, and what what are some of the new skills that you've had to learn along the way? Ha! Huh. So, I'm struggling with technology right now, just catching up with the appropriate way to get your message across on all of the platforms. So, what you do on Instagram might be a little bit different than what you do on Facebook, than what you do on LinkedIn, and learning, you know, all of this new vocabulary like algorithms and even the word platform, I, I had never heard of that before. The only platform I knew was like risers that you would stand on to sing. So, nice. you know, like it's, it. it's learning all of the lingo, right? That has been absolutely the biggest challenge for me. And I've noticed that it's also an opportunity to use it as a learning experience for other people because I notice even my own hesitation where I'm like, do I push through this or do I just give up? And just say, forget it. I can't learn it. And so, you know, I have my own teachable moments every single day where I'm like, no, just push through it. Even if it doesn't come out the way you want it to, it's just one step in the chain. So that's been really important. I think some other challenges are, you know, not everybody is going to be on your team. And that's, that's a hard one that if people don't believe in you or don't feel that or think that your goals are unattainable or whatever it is because of their own early programming, being able to separate from that and say, well, I understand that you don't believe that, but I do. And it's okay. And I can still achieve my goals, even if you're not necessarily aligned with me. Yeah, I think a lot of people struggle with that, the negative comments, both online and offline. And a lot of people will respond to that negative with more negative and, mm-hmm. and aggression. But as Gary Vee likes to talk about, if you can deploy kindness and empathy, then not only are you going to live a more fulfilling life, then you can also potentially help the other person because it's a snapshot. You're meeting them for 10 seconds out of mm-hmm. a lifetime, out of a out of a day and you don't necessarily know what's going on in their day-to-day life, right? It's the same way when you post something on Instagram or Facebook or whatever, it's it's just a moment in time. It's a snapshot. And I had a recent incident where I posted a picture of myself on vacation and someone made a comment and I said, you know, you don't know the opposite side of what's being shown in the picture. But, you know, the other thing that I've noticed, which is really kind of sad, is the amount of adult bullying 
that I've experienced. We talk about kids and bullying all the time, but the, the amount of bullying that I've experienced as an adult, especially as I've gone more public, I think it's really, it's shocking and it's sad. And it's also a lesson that not everyone is going to be on your team and people screen themselves out of your life every single day. And maybe that's okay. Yeah. And it's just having those like filters to keep going for like what you believe in and what you stand for and not allowing yourself to, I guess, undo potentially some of your work and some of your authenticity by responding with negative comments back. They say like not responding to comments is a bad thing, but sometimes the best thing to do is to just ignore it because your your community can see who truly see who you are and they care about you, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you don't want to feed negative energy more negative energy. Because if you feed it, then oh, another person's gonna jo- join one and and they don't mm-hmm. agree with that that person at all. They're just there to stir it up, shall we say, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. So what have been some professional opportunities that have come from kind of having a personal brand in your field? Oh, gosh, I think, you know, going on podcasts, doing speaking, being able to just get out in the community and just meet so many interesting people. Everybody has a story to tell. Everyone does. And there's always something that you can learn from someone else. I've sat down with people and I thought, oh gosh, we're going to have absolutely nothing in common. And I'm like, no, I got to shift that. We don't need to have anything in common because I'm here to learn. And I found that changing the mindset, redirecting where I was going opened up a huge opportunity to just learn. And I think, you know, if people take those opportunities every day and jump on them as, look, this person doesn't have to be my best friend, but maybe we can learn from each other and and that's okay. So I think being out there allows me to listen to people's stories and allows people to tell their stories too, much like what you're doing here. People get to tell their story. Exactly. You just kind of like encompass the reason why I'm podcasting is is basically learning from others. And it's also a great opportunity for me to have a a cup of tea because I'm kind of addicted being from Mm -hmm. England and life can be stressful. So for me, Mm -hmm. like this hour or 90 minutes or however long I do the podcast each week, it's almost like a tool to help my mental health too. I I can forget mm-hmm. for a few moments that like maybe some problems I'm dealing with or some st- stresses and really just focus on keeping it simple and having a good time because life's too short without sounding too cliche and we got, we, right. we got to have more fun in life. People are too, what's the word, judgmental and like they think they can't have fun when they're an adult and I'm like, I want to have lots of fun when I'm an adult but with respect to obviously boundaries and stuff, right? So. Absolutely. I mean, you know, planet Earth is basically our playground. I mean, there are tons of places that you can go every single day, locally, far away. I mean, there's just so much to offer and we sort of all get bogged down in the day to day and we forget that. Definitely. So what inspired you to write the books that I referred to at the beginning of this podcast? And what was some of the challenges about the, I guess, the overall writing process? So I've always enjoyed writing. I've always been a good writer. I mean, I had to write so many papers in college and, you know, a hundred page dissertation. The idea of writing a book never really 
was something like, oh, I'm going to be an author, going to be an author, but opportunities would come up and people would say, you should write a book about this or you should write about this. And I just kind of took it and ran with it and found that it's a, it's just a different way to share an experience and connect with people. And, and people, I know how I feel when I read a book where I really connect. I feel like I know the author. I feel like I know the experience. I'm like, oh my gosh, somebody knows exactly what I'm going through. So I really was hoping to give that to other people. I think it's just always finding the time to write. And luckily I get up very early in the morning. And so that's usually the time that I will do it. And morning happens to be the time where I get the best ideas and things like that. When I had, you know, younger kids at home, it was definitely a big challenge. And just also being able to put it in a way, it's one thing to think it, it's another way to put it in a book in a way that people can understand the complicated workings of, of a brain. Also, what advice would you give to someone that's maybe thinking about writing a book, but the challenge for them is, oh, it's, it's already been done. There's so many like books out there that my, I guess, viewpoint, perspective, doesn't matter because Sid's done it in his way, Bob's done it, Sally's done it, that type of thing. Yeah, I mean, I would answer that with, mm, it hasn't been done by you. So you have something to offer because it's being filtered through your lens. And I would also say, reach out to somebody who has written a book and ask them for advice. I mean, I know it's interesting because when I'm at workshops or I'm talking places, you know, people, I'll say to people, please reach out to me, text me, email me. I'm happy to give any kind of advice and to pass on what I've learned. And people would actually say to me, really, you would do that? And I'd say, of course, why wouldn't I? So I think there's like that, that rule that you can't ask people for advice or you can't ask people for help. And I encourage it. I mean, that's where where I've learned the most is from people who are willing to give of their time. Awesome. And so we've talked about it throughout the, the podcast so far, but obviously your like overall vision is always centered around peace and love. So can you give maybe a couple of examples of how you kind of practice this vision on a daily, mm-hmm. monthly, kind of yearly basis? Yeah, I think, you know, I think there are two things. The direction is everything that I do comes from a place of wanting to have people leaving feeling better than when they came in to see me, whether it's a a professional interaction, whether it's a personal interaction. So I'm always mindful of that. Any client or any patient or anybody who I see, I have some sort of affection for not inappropriate affection, but I have to like the people who I see. And I've been able to find, even in people who on the surface look like they're just not nice people, there's always something that I can find in somebody that makes it so that we can grow from there. I think that's really important. And I think more recently, it's combining all of that with the opportunity to redirect change your thinking, change your early programming, and do it from a place of love, not beating yourself up, not beating the people up that you grew up with who maybe programmed you to be this way, but just understanding this is what happened, this is the context, you can shift that at any moment and change. Don't beat yourself up for making a mistake. You can change the trajectory, you can redirect yourself 
at any point during the day. People will say, I'll, I'll start that diet Monday. I'll do this on New Year's. I'll do it now. Start right now. And don't beat yourself up about it. Just, just start it. Say, okay, you know, it, it's time for me to just regroup and start over. Fantastic. Okay, so we're going to mix it up a little bit now. So kind of outside of your work in psychology and everything that you do around that vision of peace and love, you also happen to teach R-E-I-K. Reiki, yeah. So I'm certified in Reiki. So I, you know, I do use some energy kind of healing with, don't do it so much with my patients, but I do do it with my family and, and people who I know. I find it just fascinating. I think there's so much knowledge out there, things that maybe we can't see, but it doesn't mean that they don't exist. And, you know, people have said to me, how can you be a science person and still believe in, in all of this other stuff? And I think there's room for both. I don't think it's either or. I think it's both and. And so I think we don't know everything there is to know. And so why would I close my mind to anything? It doesn't make sense to me. Right. Because it's all about getting the most out of different things, right? To be the best that you can be ultimately. Right. Right. I mean, a long time ago, we really didn't think that the brain and body were connected. And now we know that so much of what goes on emotionally can influence how we're feeling physically. And for years, people didn't even think that that was possible. So I don't close my mind to anything. I think it's really important to stay connected. Cool. And so hypothetically, Malden, what would a client experience look like if they booked one of these sessions with you? Because I got to be honest, like when I was researching this. I had never, ever heard of this before. Interesting. Interesting. So yeah, so it's sort of, you know, it, it, it depends. Like I've had stomach issues for many, many years, digestive issues. And my son actually, when he was 14, he got certified in Reiki with me. Some people have a natural talent for it, but, but why I decided that we should do the training was I was having really bad stomach pains one night and I just said to him, hey, can you just like put your hands over my stomach? I feel for some reason like that may help. And I just felt like this heat coming off his hands and I saw his body start shaking and I felt my stomach actually get better. And so I'm like, I wonder what we just did here. And so I looked it up and I had talked to some people. And so I said, you know, this is something kind of that I want to explore more. Now, people, there are people who've gone through years and years of training, just haven't had the time to do it. So I kind of just, I'm mindful of it, but it, it feels like you're bringing a heat and maybe a healing energy to a person, whether it's their heart that needs to heal because it's broken or whether it's like a physical illness. There's the idea that, you know, we are we are energetic creatures, human beings. We're energy, we're electricity. And so is there's a possibility that there's something to that that we just haven't been able to see. But it's still there. That's cool. So Another thing that you like to do is you like to travel. So keeping it simple, why, why do you like to travel? What are some maybe memorable moments or stories that you've had from traveling? Travel, I think, is just a part of my soul, just seeing new things, meeting new people. I think I've had really unique opportunities. So I was able 
in my high school, we, they used to have trips every year that we could go on. And I was able to see Russia before the fall of the Berlin Wall. So it was amazing to see what it was like before. And that's an experience I wouldn't trade for anything. I've also been able to live with a family in Mexico. I stayed with a family in Ecuador and challenged my fear of heights by going on what's called the swing at the top of the world in Ecuador and to have one foot in the Northern hemisphere, one foot in the Southern hemisphere at the equator. I mean, they, these are just experiences, memories that it's just mind blowing to have those opportunities to do that. Obviously you mentioned a few, but you must've met some very amazing people along the way. Absolutely. And, you know, as much as everyone's story and history is different, there's also a thread of commonality that runs through all of us. Worries about our families, worries about kids, worries about what's going to happen to everyone. So it was really kind of unifying that doesn't matter if you're in Russia or Ecuador or whatever, we all have the same kinds of thoughts and worries and concerns. Nice. And so which country is next on your bucket list to travel to and why? Ooh, that is a good one. I was actually in London a long, long time ago, and I really loved the city. I would love to go back there and spend some more time there. Also, you know, my heritage is Italian. I've never been to Italy, so I think that would be a great adventure. And I don't know. I mean, I would love to go to Africa. I don't, and Australia was a place where I really wanted to go. The flight is a little long, but I think I could suffer through the flight because the country is supposed to be absolutely beautiful. My uncle lives in Australia. He, he lives, mm -hmm. in, I think, I think he lives in Melbourne. So, mm -hmm. so I would like also like to go to Australia. I know it's hot though. That's the only thing that I'm thinking about because I don't really like the heat, the heat too much. And I've gone gotcha. easily, but I don't know, maybe I'll just have to like struggle through it for the experience. Struggle through it, right. But just pack your sunscreen. Nice. And so what, what do you kind of do to look after your physical and mental health on a daily basis? Definitely, definitely exercise. That has always been something for me since I was a kid. Moving my body just always felt good. So when I'd be studying for like midterms or finals in high school, put on my Walkman, that's how long ago it was, put on my Walkman and go out for a walk. And it was really, really good for stress management. I also found that, you know, walking, I had my best creative ideas. So most of my papers in college, parts of my books, all of that came to me as I was walking. I'd be stuck on an idea and I'd go out for a walk and all of a sudden I'd get unblocked and I still use it. I still go for a walk or go for a bike ride, you know, every day just because it feels so good to be outside. Awesome. And I also remember the, the Walkman and I had one when I was growing up and it's interesting because I was born in 95. So, you know, that time where still I got to experience some of the the older forms of technology like mm -hmm. the Walkman and how you used to flip the cassette player in time when it got to the end yeah. of the track. And I used to have a, a manual radio where you used to t turn the dial for the, like, yes. the, the frequency. And mm -hmm. I love things like that. But then I also saw the shift of how it went from the analog one to a more digital world where you just had to move it in and hit, hit a button and it would magically like be at the frequency. So yeah, I, I didn't really think about it at the time, but I guess I lived through some of those like te technological shifts. 
Absolutely. So that's, that's what I do. So it's, and, and fortunately living in Florida now, I have the benefit really of the weather's not an obstacle. And I, I love that. I love being able to say I can go out at any time and just, you know, go sit by the water or go, you know, journal and go for a walk or whatever it is I need to do to take care of like my mental health and my physical health. Awesome. So what's next for you, both personally and professionally? So professionally, this year, the rest of this year is going to be focused on expansion. That's the word for the rest of the year is expansion. It's growth. It's serving more people and just getting out there where we all need to be. So hopefully you will be seeing a lot more of me. I think we are going to be doing a one of my books came out during the pandemic, so I think I, it didn't have an appropriate book launch. So I think we'll be doing a book launch in September, probably some travel for work or personally, whether it's just local or just, you know, in the U.S., so many beautiful places for us to see, but I haven't pinned anything down yet. So that's kind of where I'm headed. I have a birthday coming up next week, so it's going to be a lot of celebration. And so I'm really looking forward to the things that are coming. Awesome. So, so I guess happy birthday for next week. Thank you. And so finally, based off everything that you've experienced so far and will continue to experience, what's kind of one piece of advice that you would like to pass on to someone that's listening to this episode? Oh, gosh, don't give up. You still have skin in the game until you give up. Until you give up, it's game on. So, you know, just... If you need to take a pause, take a pause, regroup, redirect, but just don't give up. There were many, many times where I was threw my hands up and I was like, I should just give in. And I'm like, no, because then it's over and I don't want it to be over. I'm not ready for it to be over. So, you know, yeah, I've taken pauses where I'm like, I'm not going to work on that right now, or I'm going to go for a walk or I'm going to do whatever do that, take care of yourself, but just keep moving forward. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being on the, the Tea with Mike show today, Laura. I really hope you had a good time. Oh my gosh, I had so much fun. It was so nice talking to you. Awesome. Okay, everyone, this was another episode of the Tea with Mike show with Dr. Laura Ellick. What a great story learning about how Laura has got into the professional field of psychology and then some of the cool stuff that she does outside in her personal time. And if you enjoyed this episode of the Tea with Mike show, make sure you check out some of the other amazing stories of people all over the world at teawithmike.com and on all of the major podcasting platforms. Thank you, Laura. It's the Tea with Mike show.